Welcome to Transformative Principal, where we interview real principals who are doing amazing things to help our students every single day. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter, at Jethro Jones. This week, I am doing something a little bit different. I interviewed Doug Robertson, who's the author of He's the Weird Teacher. You can find him on Twitter, at He's the Weird Teacher. What I'm doing this week is interviewing a teacher who seems like they've got it together with great ideas of how to do awesome things in the classroom. This is a fairly long interview, so it may take you a while to get through, and that's totally fine. But what I'm hoping you'll get from it is an idea of how to inspire some of your teachers who may be a little bit different, maybe even weird, like Doug is. And that's definitely weird in a good way. I hope that you enjoy this and take your time listening to it and share it with those teachers who you think aspire to be weird like he is. Tell me about working in Hawaii. What's it like over there? Um, Hawaii is, is beautiful and the sunset tax is pretty brutal. Like, <laughs> It it's you can't you can't complain about living in Hawaii because if you complain about living in Hawaii, all you get is, oh, it must be really terrible to have <laughs> seventy degrees all the time and the ocean twenty minutes away. Uh-huh. That sounds really hard, and like, it's true. Hawaii is incredible. It's beautiful. It's really hard to complain about. Um, but as far as working as a teacher in Hawaii, it is really hard because the cost of living is so high. Hawaii's teachers, when you adjust for cost of living, are the worst paid teachers in the nation. They're 50 out of 50. Wow. And and that's awful. So the reason that we moved um, away from Hawaii was we had our we had our son, we had our first kid about halfway through last school year. And my wife wants to be mom at home. That 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 was always the plan. And the fact is you can't survive in Hawaii on one teacher's salary. It's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. It's not even like, well, we could cut here and there and move into this place. It, you, you can't live in Hawaii on a teacher's salary. It, you just can't. So we had to move. Um, and that really sucked because I liked my school and I liked my kids and I liked the people that I was working with for the most part. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we just couldn't handle it. And that's what's really hard is that Hawaii is such a great place, and it needs good teachers. But they come because, of course, I want to come live in Hawaii. I'm young, and I'm single, and it's awesome. And then you build a family, and then you move because Mm -hmm. you have to. Or you live kind of a hard, tight life that a lot of teachers that I know are living, too. Right, yeah. So did you meet your wife over there? I did. Yeah. I, we, we moved, uh, independent of each other. I moved, um, six years ago, basically because like I said, because I was single and wanted to live in Hawaii. I had Mm -hmm. been to Hawaii a bunch of times. Every time I had to get dragged kicking and screaming back onto the plane. So I, I moved there, um, with a job and then she visited a friend of hers who lived there. And her friend was dating one of my friends, so we met that way. And then, um, don't tell her this is how I tell the story. 
Um, then after she met me, I couldn't get rid of her and she would follow me around all the time and she was always <laughs> calling and stuff. So I decided that we should date and, and then, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. All right. Well, it looks like we got a good connection, so we'll go ahead and get started with the official podcast. Why don't you start by telling us about who you are, what you do, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Um, my name is Doug Robertson. I'm a third grade teacher this year in Southern Oregon at White City Elementary School. Um, I This is my eighth year of teaching. It's been so long now, I'm like blanking out. Uh, I think this is my eighth year of teaching. I taught for a year in California, taught third grade, and then I taught for six years in Hawaii. So yeah, this would be my eighth year because now I'm here in Southern Oregon. Um, I just wrote a book called He's the Weird Teacher. It's been out for a few months. You can find it on Amazon and iTunes and uh, Barnes and Noble. You can get it in paperback or in um, as an e-copy. And that's kind of why I'm doing a lot of the stuff that I've been doing now because the book has opened me up to so many other venues. And it's it's helped me meet so many other teachers and have a lot of really interesting conversations about education. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've, I've read the book, um, and it is great. I really enjoyed it. And you've got a lot of really awesome stuff in there. And it made me think, what can I do to instill these kinds of things in my students and how or not my students, but in my teachers, excuse me. And how can I get Doug to move to Utah and teach at my school? <laughs> uh, that means a lot. Thank you so much. And that um, I'll answer the other stuff too, but hearing that kind of stuff is gratifying on an ego level. Like, yay, people read the book and they liked it. Um, but it's also gratifying on a professional level because mm -hmm. teaching is such a, such a solitary thing. Like you have staff meetings and you have grade level meetings, but in the end you're stuck on an Island all by yourself. Yeah. And I think a lot of us are doing something in our classrooms that we're not entirely sure works we're, we're experimenting and we're playing and i teach this way and this is my style and i never really knew if my style was a translatable style if this is a if what i'm doing is 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 working the way i think it's working if my education philosophy makes sense to other people and then um last year and the year before i had a student teacher i had two student teachers so they were guinea pigs too. And I, I started throwing all of my education philosophy at them and they were able to make it work. So I started thinking, oh, these things that I'm thinking and these things that I'm doing are real. Like it actually works. Uh, and that kind of motivated me to write the book because, because I felt like a lot of the stuff I was saying to my student teachers was valuable to them. And those are things that I, I thought, I need to write this down because I've always been a frustrated writer. Mm -hmm. So I might as well write it down. And even if nobody buys the book, at least I've written it down. But people have bought the book. And people have, like, I've become really close friends with a couple of teachers. Um, there's a teacher on Twitter named Samantha Bates who read the book and she reached out to me. And she, we're, we're like tight friends now, mm -hmm. like digital friends, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and... Now I can, we're sharing it. And she's like, I read your book and, and it was like 
I had written it, but you said things in the book that I have thought. And it that's so gratifying to know I'm not alone on this little island. And the way that I teach and the way that I think about teaching, other people do too. I'm 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 the weird teacher because of maybe the ways I do it, but the way I teach, the way I think about teaching is not as weird as I thought. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it it seems weird because it is not how one you're taught to be a teacher in teacher preparation classes. And it's not how how we can trust every teacher to teach because some people don't have the personality or style for the approach that you have. And I, and it takes time to develop that skill and that ability. And it takes a lot of trust from um in yourself and from your, I think, administration to be able to take the risks that you talk about taking in your book. Uh, I, yeah, I completely agree. Um, oh, there's so much. Um, one of the one of the big things I talk about in the book early in the chapter or early in the book is is the uh, the idea that teaching is a performance art. I've always felt like teaching was an art form more mm -hmm. than a science. Um, because at the end of the day, you're standing on, and I know we're not the sage on the stage. That's not the way we teach anymore, but you're still standing in front of a, an audience wow. trying to make them interested in something that they might not be interested in. These eight-year-olds don't care about fractions. Yeah. And my job is to make them care about fractions and not, not make them learn it, make them want to learn it, which is a completely different thing. And I think especially when you're a new teacher, you do that by, and this is kind of a joke, you do that by teaching louder and slower. Mm -hmm. I teach louder and slower and harder, then they will learn it better. And that's because you're insecure. I must keep the class very tightly under control, and I must stand in front of them, and I must talk at them, and they will learn because I told them they have to learn. And as you become a better teacher and as I became a better teacher and as my personality, I, w I started to relax and let my personality shine through and, and take risks in my classroom and see those risks pay off. Um, I started to realize exactly how much teaching is like an art form and how much those acting classes that I took in college were valuable mm -hmm. and, and how much um, the, the rock stars that I look up to, I can I can use Paul Stanley in my classroom. I can use Henry Rollins in my classroom. I can use Steven Tyler in my classroom. Those guys do things on stage that I can use in front of kids. And they're it's it's transferable. Uh Robert Downey Jr. does stuff that I that I know will work in front of my kids because they like watching Iron Man. Mm -hmm. So his thing will work for me. Um and I just got lost a little bit in what I was talking about. Um trying to do that there, there's like you said there's a lot of trust there's a lot of trust in in yourself i i regularly will do something that the back of my head is going this you're not this isn't going to work or this is not going to work right or this is not going to work the way you think it's going to work and accepting those things i think is really really important for a lot of teachers um very few lessons are perfect, especially if you're being observed. Those lessons are never perfect. Right. Um, those, those are the lessons that the kids are on the walls and there's a bird in your classroom and there's a bug and all of that. Everything that goes wrong can go wrong. Um, 
But once you accept, none of these lessons are going to be exactly perfect the way I planned them. But I'm a good enough teacher. I'm a good enough improviser. I'm professional enough. And I have the objective of the lesson strongly enough in mind. I can make whatever actually happens in the lesson work. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of quotes from your book that I think very succinctly tell what it is that makes a good teacher a, a, a really great teacher. And these are things that I feel philosophically very deep um, in my soul about. And, and there are things that, that the reason, the reason that I want you on the, on the podcast is so that um, to give an idea of what kind of things principals should be looking for in teachers when they're hiring. And one of the things that you say that I love is what happens in my classroom happens because I want it to. And you talk a lot more about that, but that idea that what happens in your classroom happens because you want it to is so powerful. And that can be applied up the chain to principals as well as down the chain to um, to individual students. What happens in here happens because I want it to. And that idea that you are in control is way more powerful than the idea that these kids come from whatever kind of background and there's nothing I can do to 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 make them better they're just going to be better or they're not and and I have no impact that's totally false but what happens in my classroom happens because I want it to talk more about that would you please uh yeah uh and you can quote my stuff back at me all day my ego <laughs> will love you um <laughs> I think um taking a real personal responsibility for the learning and the, the the behaviors that happen in your classroom is a very important thing. And I'm seeing that a lot right now. I've actually had a couple of conversations about that on Twitter recently, especially through um, Slow Chat Ed. That, that's been a topic, I think, this week, um, where a lot of teachers or people kind of associated with education or saying like the the common core state standards are going to be taking things out of our hands mm -hmm. and and everything is going to be dictated and you have to do it this way and that's not that's not the case at all um they're 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 a destination but the way i get there the travel plans all me that kind of stuff is is my job and I guess from a teacher looking at a principal perspective, I need a principal that understands that. I need a principal that trusts, okay, you hired me because you saw a good teacher. You didn't hire me because you saw a parrot or a tape recorder. You hired me because you saw a professional who knows how to do this job. Now I need you to let me do this job. Um, and as far as long as you let me do this job and Obviously, you check in on me and you make sure I'm not doing some crazy thing. We will get it done. Um, one of my favorite things is, is a guy named Chris Hardwick, who's all over the Internet right now. And he says this a lot um, when he's talking about comedy and when he's talking about movies. He says, when you let funny people be funny, you get funny things. So if you look at movies like Caddyshack or Ghostbusters, mm -hmm. those are movies where they just put a bunch of funny people in a room and then all of the suits went away. And they let funny people make a funny thing, and it turned out funny. And I feel the same way about teachers. 
if you let a bunch of smart, talented teachers into a room and you say, these are the standards, these are the goals that you're going for, go. We will come up with good ways to get there. If you let good people do the thing that they're good at, you will get a good thing at the end. Um, so that's the, kind of, that's the kind of stuff I need from a principal. That takes a lot of trust from a principal because we are all under a lot of pressure right now. There's a lot of stuff that is sitting on top of you guys as administration. And then you guys are sitting on top of us. And then we're sitting on top of our kids. There's lots of stuff falling down. Mm -hmm. um, so the ability to be like, okay, there's a lot of pressure on this, but you guys understand that there's a lot of pressure. So I'm going to let you do what you do. And I'm going to trust that you understand everything that needs to happen and that you will make it happen in your own way is super important. And I know there's a lot of administrators out there that don't do that. And there's a lot of programs out there that don't do that. I've been in a reading program and I can't remember what it's called because I blocked it. Um, but it was in, when I was teaching in California where it was like on Monday at 8.30, you will be on page 72. And at 8.45, you will be done with that page and you will be on this page. And every single third grade in this district will be there. If I walked into your room, I would know exactly where you are. And that's insane. That's awful. That was horrible. And it was, I was still a baby teacher. It was only my first contract year. So I didn't really have all of the skills to, to express exactly what was so frustrating about it. Mm -hmm. But I knew it was frustrating. If I was put in a program like that now, I wouldn't be able to handle it. I wouldn't be able to handle a person saying, you will teach this exactly this way, exactly on this day, exactly at this time. No, I'm good at this job. Tell me where you want the kids to be and I will get them there. Trust me. So as you were searching for jobs when you moved back from Hawaii and now you're in Oregon, what, how did you determine if the principal was going to allow you that freedom or, or not? What, how did you make that? How did you know that before you took a job? Um, to be perfectly honest, I didn't like, we had to get out of Hawaii, uh, because we couldn't live. So the, my six years in Hawaii, you know, after the first two or three years, I felt comfortable and, um, if I hadn't really liked the, the people that I was working with, I would have moved schools and I would have jumped to somewhere where there was another principal because I was established in Hawaii. Coming from Hawaii to, to Oregon was a risk for me professionally because I didn't, I, I was at the mercy of whoever will hire me. The, mm -hmm. the goal, at least for this year, was always we just need to get back to the mainland we need to get back we, we i don't care where in oregon we teach i the goal was was the portland area because we really like it up there and we ended up literally as far away from portland as you can get and <laughs> still be in oregon um <clears throat> but we'll, we're back on the mainland and if the school is awful and the principal's awful then i'll suffer for a year and we'll apply and at least we're on the mainland where it's mm -hmm. easier to move um, and I actually got really lucky. I got hired by a school where my principal is amazing. I'm so happy. I'm hyperbolically happy with my principal. She's so good. And I didn't know, she actually didn't even interview me. She was on vacation when they hired me. So like wow. she came back from vacation. And they were like, hey, you've got a new third grade teacher. It's this person. And I'm sure for her, it was the same. Like, oh, okay. 
And, you know, I'm coming in like, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what this lady's going to be like. And she's great. She's she's let me get away with things at the school that are, it's so freeing. And she has so much trust. I've been in her office um, like, we need to do, um, I just did this to her. We need to do Read Across America. What do we do for Read Across America? And she's like, well, we've never really done anything too big for Read Across America, not in a few years. Okay, well, I'm going to plan a Read Across America thing, and I'm going to get readers to come in for everybody's class. Is that okay? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, sweet. And she just let me run with it. And so now I'm more willing to set up another Read Across America next year, set up uh, other stuff. Like, and I didn't build Read Across America all by myself at our school. My librarian was a gigantic help. Um, but none of that would have been possible if my principal had not trusted me to do that. And she's, um, she's been in my room observing me formally and informally and just popping in more than I've ever had a principal in my room. I, in Hawaii, I, my principal never came into my room. And Mrs. Walker is always in my room. And not because she's like, I need to watch that guy. She just wants to be in everybody's room because she understands that like the the two formal observations that she has to do are not reflective of everything that happens in my classroom you need to be able to come in and see so you get a lot of samples you know mm -hmm. yeah. and her being in my classroom so often makes me trust her more because then she gives me constructive feedback you you did this really well these kids were a little bit off task i think you could take what you're doing here and I think these are steps that you could expand it to. And because she's in my room so often, I can say, that's actually a really good idea. That's a really good point. I'm going to put that in rather than if my principal in Hawaii, who was a great guy, uh, and I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about him, but if he just said, well, when I was in your room for your observation, I saw this and this and this, and I think you should do this, a big chunk of the back of my head would have been saying, you don't. You, you're, this is the only time this year you've ever been in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So while that's a good idea, you don't know that I'm not already doing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. Um, so one of the other things I want to talk about from your book is you say, when a child does well, you're a great teacher. When a child struggles, his parents aren't helping enough at home. You can't have it both ways. Either you, the teacher, are the final word, or you aren't. I love what you're saying there because th throughout your book, you're taking away the opportunity for people to make excuses for why things aren't going well. You, you take full responsibility. And when I said before, how can I get Doug to come to Utah? That was, that was me. And how can I get my teachers to be like him? That was me saying, how can I get um, my teachers to take full responsibility for whatever is going on? the good and the bad in their classroom. And <clears throat> I know, and you know, that you're not a perfect teacher who never makes mistakes, but you're going to take responsibility for everything that you do, whether it works out amazingly or whether it totally bombs, and you're going to own it, and you're going to do the best you can the next time. And, and talk about how you came to develop that attitude and how you... Um, how you see that as being so vital to your, to your career as a teacher? Um, where that idea first came from is you hear 
teachers all the time complaining about parents. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I only have this kid for this long. The kid, the, the the parents have the kid for the rest of their life. So when they came to me, they were like this. Or when they go home, this is what's going to happen, and and I can't control that. And my response to that has always been, or as I've um because I've done my fair share of complaining about parents. Mm-hmm. You complain about parents mess up kids. Um, but the parent is not in my classroom. The, the, the parent is not the person that I'm trying to help. If the parent is helped in the process, if the parent will come to me or if our communication is good, then hopefully I can help them help their child better. I'm not saying I'm going to make them a better parent. That's not my job. That's mm-hmm. not my training. Uh, I, I want their kid to do better, just like I think they want their kid to do. Even the bad parents, quote unquote, the bad parents, still want their kids to do better. They still want their kids to do well. Um, and I need you to tell me again the, the first part uh, that you asked. I'm sorry. That's that's quite all right. Um so that was where your your idea and belief of that came from. And why do you think that's so important and why did you talk about that so early in your book and and why is that such a, an important thing for you to remember and for other teachers and principals to remember also? Um it it's so important because like you said I'm all about taking away excuses. The more excuses you have, the more, the less responsibility you feel towards everything that you're doing. I, I, well, the parents are bad and the curriculum is too um, intense or too, too restrictive. And my administrator is not good. And this and that and the other thing. And I don't have enough computers in my classroom and my books are too old. Okay, but what are you doing in spite of all of that then because at the end of the day my job is to teach these kids at the end of the day my job is to make sure all of my third graders are ready for fourth grade and really my job is to make sure that all of my fourth grade third graders are ready to be grown-up human adults at some point i can't make an excuse for that and i i want to take those excuses away so yes maybe the parent is a problem that doesn't change my goal. That doesn't change my expectation mm-hmm. of the child. Um, and that shouldn't change my expectation of myself. Um, and it's, 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 it's pie in the sky. And it's, 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 um, it sounds, oh, you're, it's, it's just wonderful that you have such high expectations. And it's not easy. And everybody slips. Like you said, nobody is a perfect teacher. I'm not a perfect teacher. I'm not a great teacher. I don't, I have moments where I'm like, this is this parent's fault. Everything that is wrong with Mm -hmm. this child right now is not my fault. This is all the parent's fault. And then I have to, uh, okay, I've, I've had that moment. I've had my little foot stamp tantrum. Now I'm going to move past that and find, okay, so maybe this kid is kind of screwed up because of the parent. What am I going to do about that? How am I going to react to that? I am not in a bubble. I am not stuck in concrete. I am dancing with these kids. I am helping them and finding other avenues and finding other ways. Um, 
it's it's i think part of it also might come from my background in like in, in sports i was a i was a swimmer for forever and i had a bad race um why did you have a bad race well because i was tired or my arm hurts or this and that and the other and at the end of the day coach is like you need to have a good race why didn't you have a better race i need to figure out a way okay well this and this happened but when i'm in the water I'm here to swim. I need to get some and I need to go. Um, and when I'm teaching, I need to get some and I need to go. That's all there is to it. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, that sure does. Um, and I think that kind of leads into um, this next quote from your book that I wanted to read. If you're constantly complaining about a child, then the child is no longer at fault. You, as the teacher, are not doing enough to change their behavior. If the problem is always the same, then my first question is, what are you doing about it? If you don't have a reasonable, flexible answer, then you are actually the problem. And what I love about that is that I, first, I totally agree with it. And second, um, when you are being negative or making excuses, all you're doing is avoiding the actual problem. and that is, there's no way that we can do the things we need to do with our students that we can move them forward without, without taking much more responsibility and getting away from the excuses. Um, you're also realistic, however. You say in your 19 beliefs about teaching, number okay. 15 is try not to complain about your kids too much. Negativity is sneaky and contagious. And, you know, as as I'm reading through your book up to this point, I'm thinking, does this kid or does this guy ever have a a, a problem with any of his students? Is there anything that's ever <laughs> bugging him because he he speaks so positively? He must he must always be happy. Later in the book, you talk about when you yell at your students, and so talk a little bit about about when it's okay to complain and and how you do that and how you stop yourself from complaining too much um okay uh like i was like like i was saying before when i taught in hawaii i taught with a lot of really good teachers and i also taught with two awful miserable horrible human beings <laughs> who loved loved tearing their kids down and loved um being mad they called themselves hammer one and hammer two and they loved to complain about their kids it was so bad i stopped eating lunch with them mm -hmm. because i just i couldn't hear it anymore and up until that point i had always been like a positive teacher but that year i was like this is it it, it was it was so bad that when i would be disciplining my kids i would think to myself is this how those two teachers would talk to their kids and if the answer was yes, I would stop and I would have to find a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it, it almost developed out of spite from these other teachers. Like, this is the way it has to be. Um, and as far as complaining and venting goes, I, I am all for complaining and venting. I actually, I've got a YouTube channel too, and I just did one uh, about venting. Venting is good. Venting, venting is like a slow release. 
and get it out of your system every once in a while. Nobody is 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 Unikitty. I don't know if you've seen the Lego movie. Yeah, I have. And you know, she's everything is positive and she's just choking all of that anger down until the end of the movie mm-hmm. where she just freaks out. And and it's it's hilarious because that's that, you know, I, I'm not Unikitty, not at all. Um and but at the same time, and I told my student teachers this a lot. The more you complain about your kids, the more that line gets etched in your brain. Like I I try not even to say like this kid's a space cadet or this kid's a little bit goofy and space cadet and goofy those are not really judgmental terms those are not you wouldn't say that's a negative term right if you just heard it once or twice like maybe yeah, endearing yeah it's endearing yeah I've, I've met this kid and he's totally a space cadet mm-hmm. um but if you say it over and over and over and over again it turns into a negative term it turns into a label Every time you look at that kid, you think, okay, he's a space cadet. He's not going to get it, or he's going to get it slower, or he's going to get it weird. And that's when it becomes a problem. Um, Of course, I come home and complain to my wife about a kid every once in a while. I don't do it every day, but there are days when the entire class is insane. Mm -hmm. And 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 you can't you you need to talk about it otherwise you'll explode but by and large my kids don't give me much to complain about and i don't know if that's me and the way i yes. i think part of it is me and the yes. way i look at the class and i think part of it is is um the way my 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 expectations level my expectation level is and my temperament i'm i'm not a i'm a horrible audience member like i i'm so bad at sitting in a staff meeting i'm so so bad at it and i know it and that makes me sympathize with the kids who are fidgeting and playing and doing all because i understand guys i totally get it that's the way i am too so when they're talking and when they're noisy and when they're working and they're talking, that's the way I work and talk. That's mm-hmm. that's that's the way I get stuff done too. My classroom is noisy because my classroom has to be noisy. When my classroom is quiet, they're plotting and I don't trust them. They're up to something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's another part. My my um my baseline for what is annoying or what is obnoxious or what is weird. I think is very, very different than the baseline of a lot of other teachers. And I think part of that comes from, like I said, my personality and part of that comes from they're nine. I have nine-year-olds. Right. Nine-year-olds are crazy people, but they should be crazy people. I like weird kids. I like it when they're goofy. And as and we, my kids and I have lots of conversations. We can be goofy and we can be silly, but the second I tell you we need to get to work, you need to get to work. Mm-hmm. And we do lots of training. And we do that's that's the beginning of the year is teaching them how I teach, and teaching them how we are going to work together, um, so that by the end of the year, they something will happen that is a bad thing, but because of the relationship I've built with my class and the way they know it's easy to deal with and it's easier to fix. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, so yeah, I'm not positive all the time. I just I'm not negative all the time. Right. I, I try to keep it like a five to one. I, it, for every one negative thing that comes out of my mouth about my class, be it to my class or to another teacher or to just some random person, five positive things should come out of my mouth because that's really I've got a bunch of good kids and every single year I've had a bunch of good kids and that might be I tell my kids every year you guys are the weirdest class I've ever seen I've never seen a group of children this weird how come I always get the weird group of kids and mm -hmm. they always say we learned from you mm -hmm. and I truly believe that I think that's another part of the chapter that you were you were just talking about is your classroom reflects who you are. If your classroom is full of rotten kids, what are you doing to make them all rotten? Because they're, you don't have 20, there's no way, the odds are impossible that you got 25 rotten kids. That's right. impossible. So what are you doing to make them rotten? And I got 25 weird kids. So what am I doing to make them all so weird? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one thing that you said was your your tolerance or threshold for um for student behavior is different than others i don't remember exactly how you said it but um but i've i've experienced that also and one of my duties as assistant principal at my school is to be down in the lunchroom um pretty much every day uh when the kids are eating lunch and we are a gold middle school and that means that we have certain things that we do to encourage healthy attitudes and and actions at our school and one of those things is that the kids stay in the cafeteria for 20 minutes so they have plenty of time to eat and then they go out and play for th the other 20 minutes and um i personally do not mind a noisy cafeteria it does not bother me at all and there are people um at my school who are in there every day also who who really do not like a noisy cafeteria and i know that it's very difficult for them um to have a lot of noise and there's only been there are only two things that i stop the noise for in in the cafeteria um the first one is if there's something that is um that needs to change like we have an inside day i make them all quiet down so i can make an announcement the other thing is if kids are chanting like um something to rile some other kid up that's the other thing that i stop but pretty much everything else because i want the kids to be able to have a, a relaxing time i want them to be able to be themselves and not feel like they have to be this you know we have to be silent because we're still inside the school building i've never gone to a restaurant that has been quiet and felt like it was a comfortable place for me to eat and it, like if when I've I've gone to a couple of fancy dinners and when nobody's talking I get really nervous like you were saying and uncomfortable because there's something going on that's not right we are eating dinner we should be chatting enjoying ourselves and and having a good time and so so I always let the kids you know be as loud as they need to in the cafeteria and and it's fine with me and and I know that that that's not the same for everybody else and in my classroom i was the same way i wanted my kids to be noisy and actively engaged in whatever they were doing and that made me feel like i was doing something right not like i was doing something wrong of course if i'm 
lecturing about something or giving directions they need to be listening, but their independent work time, that was that uh, was hardly ever a time where they need to be totally silent or doing exactly um, only working on their individual work and not trying to collaborate and, and learn from each other. That was always a, an encouraged thing in my class. For sure. I, so much of school, is, and I think we forget this even as adults sometimes, or I, I don't feel like I've forgotten, at least not yet, but you hear it all the time from, from people, kids today kids these mm -hmm. and you know what kids these days have been kids these days since forever right forever. the ancient egyptians were saying these this next generation of kids oh my god the the pyramids are going to fall down and everything it's just going to be yeah. off everything is going to be terrible the next generation you always always is like these oh my god everything is horrible so much of what you learn in school is not school it's it's everything it's how to be a people so much of what you learn in school is how to be a human being and interact with other people so like you said if you got to sit in lunch and eat silently you're learning nothing there's right. no social learning at all go going on they should you need to be able to talk to each other and figure out how to work things out and work together um yeah, it, it, so yeah, so much of school is is non-educational, non, right. non quote unquote education. Like I'm never going to use this particular. I'm not going to learn this. Use this fact that I learned in social studies today. Okay, you may never use that fact, but you will use the tools that you learned to find that fact. You will use the tools that you learned to express that fact. Mm -hmm. And you use the tools that you learned to work with somebody else to find that fact. Yeah. All of those other things are also things that you're learning. They're just not graded. They're just not assessed in normal ways. But I'm still teaching you how to be a people. Right. Yeah, I had a, a very real experience relating to that this week when I was observing a teacher and she was teaching her students um, how to write and she was teaching them how to go back to the text and find evidence to support what they were writing and as a former English teacher that that made me feel great that she was doing that and she was taking the time and it took a lot of time to switch off the document camera onto the computer bring up the passage and zoom in and read through that passage with the students but she was doing it very skillfully and kept them engaged and made sure they were paying attention. And then she said to me, I'm sure that you, Mr. Jones, need to be able to find evidence to support what you're saying, even now as an adult. And it was a perfect um, tie-in and a, a real life skill that these kids need to have that she was able to, to help them understand this is why you're learning this. Now, this story about whatever it was they were reading, I don't remember, means absolutely nothing for the rest of your life, I'm sure. But the skill of being able to go back and find something, that's what you really need to have. And I said, well, absolutely, because I need to do that every single day. I can't just go in and say, teachers, this is what you need to do, or students, this is what you need to do. I need to have some basis for that 
besides just me deciding that that's what we're going to do today. Because me just deciding that's what we're going to do today is certainly not sustainable and not going to last. I'm not going to be a principal for very long if that's if that's how I'm <laughs> running the school. Yeah, and it's it's um it's even more of a relevant life skill, especially what you're describing is even more of a relevant life skill today than it used to be because yeah. today I don't have to memorize anything. Mm-hmm. I have a phone with the Google on it right. and the Google knows everything. So if I really need to find something out, I can look. The problem is, and I tell this to my kids all the time, Google does not give you the right answer. Google gives you all of the answers. It's right. not even finding a needle in a stack in a in a haystack. It's finding a needle in a stack of needles. Mm-hmm. You have to find the right one. So I'm not just I'm teaching you to read and understand. Does this make sense? This is it's all critical thinking. It's all questioning. It's not so much memorizing anymore. You don't really have to be able to spit facts and figures anymore. You mm-hmm. need to be able to find what you need, and um. And I think we're seeing this a lot with discourse on the internet because all of our kids, I, I hate digital native because I've got a bunch. Of I do too. <laughs> I, I got a, I got a ton of kids. I teach in a low income school. A bunch of my kids don't have the internet. They're not digital natives. Yeah. They're not growing up on the internet, but some of them are. And eventually most of them will be residents of the internet. Right. And as residents of the internet, they're going to have all of the information at their fingertips, but they're going to have lots of people telling them, things that look like facts, but are not actually facts. It's just stated as a fact. You need to be able to look and read and see and think and question, is what this information is a fact or is what this information is an opinion? How can I prove it? How can I justify this? Um, But yeah, the digital native thing drives me nuts. And I've gotten into arguments with people about it. Like kids today, they just pick up a computer and they know how to use it. And I'm like, my kids can't. Like they can play with it. They can, they can quote, they can use the computer. They can operate the computer. But that's like, I can hold a hammer. I can use a hammer. I cannot build a bookshelf. Right. Yeah, and and I totally agree with you. And what I always say when when people make comments like that is the big difference between you and a little kid is that the little kid doesn't care and isn't afraid if he breaks the device that he's using. That's the only difference. You are afraid to do something because you're afraid you're going to break something. But my little two, four, six, or seven-year-old daughter or son, they... They don't care. They just want to play with whatever mom and dad are playing with. So they're going to pick it up and start pushing things. And and my daughter has locked me out of my phone for 20 minutes before because she's <laughs> tried to hit into the passcode so many times. And she's not afraid of that. That doesn't bother her. But for me, I don't I don't know what's going to happen if I enter my passcode wrong 50 times. And so I'm afraid to do that. But my daughter sure isn't. She'll keep trying as long as it'll let her. And then once she when she finally does get in, she'll start pushing every single thing to just to see what it does. And she has no worries about about the consequences. She just wants to play and wants to do what mom and dad are doing. And and that's all the difference is. And but there are kids, like you said, my school is a low income school, too. And we really have to teach them how to use a computer because many of them don't have them. And many of them have 
may have smartphones or their parents may have smartphones, but they don't have um, the skills to be able to take our end of year tests on computers and interact with the keyboard and mouse in the way that the state tests require them to, which is a a huge concern, but we won't get in too much into that right now. Yeah, you're, you're not only teaching them the test, you're teaching them how to take the test, which is a completely separate skill. Right. And a very important skill also. And Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think about how how I take tests and I was I was in a a meeting at, at my church this last week and we were playing this Jeopardy game um, just for a fun thing to do. And, uh, and you know, they review, reviewed how you do it. You They give an answer and then you're supposed to ask a question. And so I got out my phone and started searching for what the question would be based on what the, the text was in the answer. And, and people started saying that I was cheating, <laughs> which maybe, but there that was never stated that you couldn't do that. So I figured I might as well because I'm not going to know the answers anyway. And, and when... <laughs> when the other team caught on, they started getting out their phones and started searching as well. But I knew how to search for the answer that would give me the right question. And and they still hadn't figured that out. And it took them a couple more um, turns to figure that out. And I had this great reflection, which I should probably write about somewhere, um, about how I I knew what kind of question it was going to ask and I knew what what answer I needed to find to be able to get the Jeopardy answer right. And that skill of being able to know how to take a test or how to find the right answers is something that um that we really need to be teaching our students and not not so much some of the other things that we may be wasting our time on. We need to teach them how to find the answers that they need. And for me, that was always, how do I find the right answer on this test? And how do I do well just on the test? Because that's what the teacher really cares about. So how do I make sure I do that right? And and so that's that's a skill that you learn and develop that, um, that I'm not sure is necessarily taught very well or very often in our schools now. I think we're definitely working on that. And uh, to come back to what you were saying about your daughter playing on your phone and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, I've done that. That's how I learn computer programs. And I think part of that is because I'm in the sweet spot of the generation where I grew up with a computer in my house. It was a real rubbish computer for a while, mm-hmm. but I grew up with a computer and I grew up with the internet. So I, I grew up experimenting and playing and pushing buttons and finding out what's going to happen and um learning like like you can't break google drive like my school does everything on google all of our we google calendars and google drive and all of you can't break it you can't and i've done informal trainings in my school with teachers who are worried about how is this going to work and how do i do this and i i'm telling them like just push buttons just try um yeah but i think that speaks to how I teach too. I'm not always, I'm not pushing random buttons, but I'm also, I'm not really worried about breaking my kids. Right. Because I'm a good enough teacher that if a lesson goes off the rails, if something goes wrong, I can fix that. I can bring them back or I can correct it. Maybe not today. I might have to wait until tomorrow if it's a really bad lesson, 
but I can fix, I can fix the problem. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday on Twitter and we were talking about, he was, he was having an issue with a parent and he wanted to tell the parent, I'm experimenting with your child because I'm not really sure. I'm still learning my own educational philosophy, but I don't feel like I can say to a parent, I'm experimenting on your child. And I feel like we should totally be allowed to tell parents, I'm experimenting with your child. Because if a doctor gets to practice medicine and a lawyer gets to practice law, I get to practice education. Right. I get to experiment and try. And so um, the same way I, I learned to mess with the computer until I make it do what I want it to do, or it magically does what I want it to do, and then I have to figure out what I pushed. Exactly. Education is the same way. I'm going I'm, I'm to teach this lesson, and then I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to reflect. I'm going to do professional reflection, personal reflection, what worked, what didn't work, what can I fiddle with, how can I make it better? Just like we do when you're pushing buttons on the computer. And I'm not scared of breaking my class because I know my class and I know that if everything goes horribly wrong, I do have the book and I can just go straight to, we're just going to do exactly what the book says mm -hmm. because at least I have that as an anchor and I can go back to that. But if I need, if I, if I feel like I can experiment, if I feel like, okay, we're going to do a little improv right now and we're going to see where this takes us. I, I'm confident enough that I can do that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that is, that is so valuable to feel like you can do that. And, and I believe that you need to have enough um, comfort and confidence in, in the basic, what the book is saying to do for you to be able to go off on your own and, and say, we're going to go above and beyond and do some things that are a little bit different. Um, Cause if you don't have that, then it is really scary to, to try something new and do something to do an experiment. Because if, if it fails and you don't know what the basic is, you don't have the confidence to say, I can go to the book and do that. And that's, it, that's an important thing. Exactly. I love, I like talking about music because I'm a big music fan and one of the best bands in the world is rush. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're all, all three of them are so technically proficient. They're so good. And one of the great things about watching like Neil Peart drum is he's not the most exciting drummer to watch. He's kind of boring to watch, but he's so technically good that you can tell that if he decided to, you, you can never tell when he starts experimenting, if he's in the middle of a solo, I don't know if this is planned or if this is, if this is him kind of going off somewhere, mm -hmm. but I've read him say there were times when I knew, okay, this is my baseline, so I can always come back to this if this isn't working. He was talking about they were at a concert and it was raining, and he was like, I don't know if this is going to mess up my electronics. Mm -hmm. And my drum solo has a lot of little electronic buttons and stuff, and if I can't use them, then I have to rebuild my drum solo. But I know where the drum solo sits. So I can start there and then I can play around. I can build out of that. And that's the same way we teach. That's exactly what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. I know the basics so I can go out. And that's what a lot of baby teachers, I think, need to, need to, need to internalize and need to learn. You've got to learn the steps first. Um, and I'm just going to keep mixing metaphors because now we're on dancing. <laughs> just do it, man. Let's go for it. <laughs> you, you need to learn all of the steps first. And once you know all of the steps, 
then you can start to freestyle. But you need to know everything first. So you need to take two or three years and really learn how you teach before you can start to experiment. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Or you can experiment a little bit, but you should probably keep a little bit closer and really get get the get the um, get the foundation down strong, so that when you do experiment, like we were saying, you can go back to that foundation. Yeah. So as how to help someone become a a teacher like you, who who feels confident enough to experiment um, and knows where your kids need to be and knows how to get them there as best you can. Um, what kind of a environment, what kinds of things does a principal need to do, create and set up for you as a teacher to feel like you can be yourself? So much trust, so much trust. And um, like, that's an, that's an easy thing to say. I need you to trust me. And I understand, like we were saying earlier, that's a scary thing because right. so many pressures from so many different directions on especially administration. That the, the more I learn about education as a whole and the more I learn about, because, you know, when you're first doing anything, it's just your own little world. Even when you're a kid, uh, it's all about me. And then you slowly learn, okay, well, it's about my me and my parents have a job. And right. then, well, my all of these other there's all of these other factors so the more you're in education the more you notice it's not just my classroom it's my grade level and then it's my school and then i'm seeing what my administrator is dealing with and then i'm seeing what my district is dealing with and then i'm seeing what's happening on a state level and then i'm seeing what's happening on a federal level um so the more i learn about all of the things that happen to an administrator and all of the pressures and pulls on an administrator more I appreciate just how difficult that job is and how horribly horrible parts of that job sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I still need you to trust me to do what you hired me to do. Like, like, like we were saying at the beginning, um, you hired me because you knew I'm a good teacher. So you do whatever you need to do to trust me. If you need to be in my room a whole bunch at the beginning of the year so that you can trust me, come into my room a whole bunch. That's your job. I'm mm-hmm. totally okay with that. Um, but if I say, if you come into my room and I'm doing something that seems really weird to you, don't shut it down. Come to me after and ask me to explain it. And as long as I can justify what I'm doing, which I should be able to because I'm a professional and I'm good at this, then it's okay. Yeah. What are you doing? I'm doing this because I think it'll hit this standard and because I think this and this and this and because this kid and this kid and this kid respond this way to this. That's what I'm doing and that's why I'm doing it. Okay. So you're not just pulling something out of your butt. You're like actually coming up. This, there's reasoning behind this. Right. Um, so I need a principal who trusts and a principal who will... Um, support and stand up for because there are parents who don't understand this kind of teaching who right. don't understand um who, who who don't feel the same way about education that that we do so when that parent comes into your office and says this teacher is not giving enough homework or this teacher is doing this or this project is ridiculous or what is going on in this classroom you as an administrator are going to say, I, this is a good teacher. 
and mm-hmm. I trust this teacher. And this teacher can explain to you exactly why they're doing it. And you might not like or agree everything that the teacher says, but I do. And I'm their boss. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the the idea of trust is something that I've heard over and over from principals that that are transformative, that are amazing, that they they have established at their schools. And that is that allows people to do whatever they need to do. And so I I totally agree with you. I think you hit it right on 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 the head that it is about trust. And that's what almost everything comes back to. And when you're teaching your students, you're trusting them to be able to handle whatever crazy thing you're doing because you know that that's what's going to help them in the long run. And and as you said earlier in this conversation in your book, if we can't get from silly to serious work in five seconds, then we're not doing silly anymore. Yeah, and uh, trust and relationships, it's the basis of my discipline plan. It's the mm-hmm. basis of my classroom. Uh, I feel like if I was an administrator, it would be the basis of my school. Trust and relationships. And like you were saying, my kids uh, my kids need to trust me that this thing that we're doing in class has a reason and it has um, goals and it has objectives. And I need to trust them back, which I think is a link that some teachers might forget about. I need to trust you back. Um, you are the student and I trust that you are here to learn and that you are going to do your best and that you are not out to get me or out to get by this. We're, we're in this together. So I, the, the, the circle of trust needs to, needs to exist. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you uh, read this book? I have heard of it. I have not read it yet. So I think that he's very similar to you, Ray Fesquith, Teach Like Your Hair is on Fire. Um, I think that he's very similar to you, and um, he does things that are that seem unconventional, but are really just good teaching skills and strategies. And um, and I feel like you'd, you'd enjoy that book, because I think it would give you some more hints as to some things that you could do. But what what I see is valuable between between your book and his book is that um, it shows a, a certain amount of extremism, like you're the weird teacher. This guy's teaching like his hair's on fire. You know, those you guys are going way over on this end to to be really great teachers and do the best that you can. And not everybody has to go there and not everybody can go there. Um, talk about, about the different degrees of teaching that someone who's not like you could still be a very successful teacher. Um, um, (laughs) put you on the spot. (laughs) Well, my style is not for everyone. And I, uh, I think I'm pretty sure I say a bunch of times in the book, this is not the way I'm telling you to teach. It's the way I'm telling you, maybe you should think about teaching. Mm-hmm. But um, you, you, uh, I want to phrase this correctly. And, oh, this is such a cliche. You <laughs> are the best you that you can be. Um, yeah. And the, 
me, who I am, I am I am a loud, bombastic rock star front man of a never-ending education funk machine. That's who I am. I'm 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 not a quiet person. I, I'm not a low energy person. I, I I cannot do those things. And if I tried to teach like that, I would go insane. And I know a lot of really good teachers who are not loud and not up all over the place mm -hmm. and not you've got the yardstick and it's a sword and you're standing on a desk people and that does not make them bad teachers that makes them different teachers right. it's more in the attitude of it um if you're teaching with love and you're teaching with respect and you're teaching with 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 fire and energy that looks different to everybody john lennon played guitar with love and energy and respect and so does Carrie King. And those two guys, he's the guitar player for Slayer. Those two guys sound completely different. Um, but they're both coming at it from the same basic place. Um, so, and I think um, good teachers, and I, I, I hesitate to say good teachers because I don't want to be telling people that they're a bad teacher. But I feel like good teachers, you can smell it on other teachers. I've gotten the opportunity to absorb, observe other teachers at my school who teach nothing like me and are amazing. They're so, and their kids are, their room is much more orderly than mine and their desk is much more orderly than mine mm -hmm. and their kids are quieter than mine, but they're lurking, they're, they're lurking, they're working and there's still a, there's still a energy, there's still a vibration in the air. It's just a different, vibration that's in the air in my classroom but it's it's in the same family does that make sense it sure does and that's exactly what i believe too and the reason i i asked that question is because i want people to understand that you don't have to be a certain type of teacher and in the interviews i'm doing you don't have to be a certain type of principal to be to be a great person and a great educator you you do have to however focus on the things that are really important and trust is one of those things relationships is one of those things and really caring about whether or not your students are are getting the things that they need when they need them and however you can go about doing that that is valuable and important and if that's what your ultimate goal is then you are you are being as you said the best teacher that that you can be and and that's great you know we can celebrate all different kinds of teaching and leading and learning and it's it doesn't all have to be the same and one student who who would really thrive in your classroom may do poorly in another teacher's classroom but may do another student may do awesome in a different style of classroom but may have a really difficult time in your classroom and and that's okay too and that's something that that through these interviews that I'm doing, I'm trying to to suss out and find the the important things that really matter more than than some things that we think matter more than they do. And I think that's a that's an interesting um, point, and that's a that's also the point where where my music metaphor falls apart a little bit. Is um, if you don't like John Lennon, you don't have to go to John Lennon's concert and you don't have to buy John Lennon's CD. He is not coming to you. He is not right. he is not your guy. But 
I, I have had kids in my classroom who do not respond well to my natural state of teaching. Mm-hmm. They are, um, especially like the really sensitive, um, I had a really sensitive uh, kid who was on the, on the spectrum. And the, the, the autism lady that talked to me was like, your class is really loud and really bright. And this is really overwhelming for him. And I can't, back to the excuses, I can't say, well, that's tough. Uh-huh. That's how I teach. And if I was a musician, I could say, that's tough. He shouldn't have bought the CD. Right. Um, but he's, he's stuck with me and I'm stuck with him. And I still need him to learn. So I need to change how I'm teaching. I need to change how I'm teaching at him. I need to change maybe how my class is set up. I need to change where he's at. My job is still, I, we are in like uh, David Lee Roth said, we are in a result oriented performance. Right. Uh, what happens at the end of it is. Uh, so, so you're right. There are kids who will learn better naturally in my room than other kids. But the kids who won't learn better naturally in my room are still in my room. So I, as the teacher, as the professional, need to modify what I'm doing to make sure I hit them. Uh, thank you for having me on. I, I'm having so. I've done a couple of podcasts now, and it's so nice. You never get to sit and really connect with another educator like this, unless you get to go to a conference or something, and you get to share ideas. So it's so nice to be able to have these intelligent adult professional conversations about stuff that we're both interested in, uh, that bore my family to death. They would just be like. I don't care anymore. I understand that you like it and that's great, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find me. The easiest place to find me is on the, the Twitter, on, on the tweets. I'm at the weird teacher. It's really, really easy. And I would love for you to reach out uh, through there. I have a blog that kind of aggregates all of the stuff. I call it my, the hub of my media empire, um, where I'm slowly taking over the education world. Naturally. Um, so the blog is he's the weird teacher And if you search, he's the weird teacher through the Google, it's going to come up. Um, if you're on Facebook, uh, my book has a Facebook page and I have a Facebook page might not friend you on Facebook like me personally. Cause I don't know who you are. Uh, <laughs> but I will, you know, you can be, the book has all of the information. So if you look for, he's the weird teacher through Facebook, you'll find it. Um, I have a YouTube channel that I think, see, this is, I, I put up YouTube videos probably once every two weeks or so. And, uh, I just did one on Tuesday that was reading Fox and socks because it was, um, read across America's Dr. Seuss birthday. Right. Um, and if you search, he's the weird teacher on YouTube, it should come up or the weird teachers class cast. It should come up. I suddenly feel like I have a whole lot of stuff. Um, that's but great. If you, go to the, if you go to the blog, like, that's connected to everything. If you go to the blog, you can find the Twitter. If you go to the blog, you can find the YouTube page. Same with the Twitter. If you go to the Twitter, you can find the blog and you can find the YouTube page. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the big thing, obviously, is the book. It's called He's the Weird Teacher. Um, it's available 
uh, like I said at the beginning, for your Kindle or for your Nook or for your iDevice um, through Amazon and through iTunes and through Barnes and Noble, you can get it in paperback um, through Barnes and Noble. You can get it in paperback through Amazon. Uh, if you live in Southern Oregon, then uh, Bloomsbury Books and Treehouse Books in Ashland both are carrying it, which is super cool. Um, so there's lots of ways to to get a hold of the book. And if you do get a hold of the book, uh, I love hearing about it. Tweet at me because it's so gratifying as an author and as a teacher when people are like, I bought your book. Uh, if you're going to say, I bought your book and you're an idiot, maybe not. Maybe not reach <laughs> out. Um, but if you liked it or if you have a question or if you have a challenge, nobody, and this hasn't happened yet, but I'm hoping it will eventually. Somebody will say, I read your book. And you say this, and I kind of disagree with you, and this is why, I would love to have that conversation with somebody. That will make me a better teacher. That will make me a better yeah. writer. Um, so I hope that happens at some point, as long as they're cool about it and it's not some troll. Yeah. Um, so that's where I'm at on the internet. I, I'm an internet resident. I live on, online. But Twitter, at the weird teacher, And really, teachers, um, if you're listening to this and you're not on Twitter, you should really be on Twitter. Uh, there's a lot of people on there, and it's a really good way to meet other people. It's it's super cool. For uh, sure. It's not the be-all, end-all, uh, which it kind of sounds like it is to a lot of people, but it is a really helpful tool. It's a tool. Everything is a tool.
I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Doug. It was a lot of fun for me to just sit down and chat with him and really connect. Uh, that's why I let it go long, and, and I'm really grateful that he was so generous with his time. He's a great educator, and I hope that you learned a lot from him. Um, please uh, check the show notes for links to his YouTube channel, his Facebook page, and his book. Go ahead and buy that. Support somebody who uh, is an educator like yourself going out there and trying to do something pretty awesome. Thanks for tuning in.